This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. Inside Story on BFM 89.9. Good evening. You're with Sharmila Ganesan and Lee Chui Lin. Tonight, dress codes and people being denied access to government services. So first, we're going to look at whether dress codes are in fact legally enforceable. And then later on, why is the Ruku Negara being dragged into this? So tell us, do you think dress codes are useful in government buildings? Have you ever been turned away because of what you were wearing? Call 77332900, send us a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio. This is Inside Story. It is 6.08 and there have been several incidents over the last two months of women being turned away or being denied services in government buildings because of what they were wearing. Um, I think at this point it would be helpful to have a, a quick run through. Okay, so let's start on the 30th of January when a woman who wanted to lodge a police report was barred uh, from entering the Kajang District Police Headquarters because she was wearing shorts. So um, the IGP had later responded to this, uh, Tansri Akril Sani Abdullah, saying that the police can relax the, dra- the dress code depending on the type of emergency faced by the complainant, but that people must always dress appropriately when visiting public buildings in general. Now, what appropriate means in the Malaysian context, I think is is perhaps up for debate, but yes. Uh, Then on the 11th of February, a female patient at the Kampa Hospital was asked to go home and change her clothes by an officer on duty as she was wearing shorts. Uh, She was wearing shorts because she'd come from a game of badminton. Yes. Yeah, so again, I think... And was seeking medical treatment. Yeah, so again, the the context and, and... how people live, I think, is important. Uh, just to be clear, that is subsequently has been um, by the, the Ministry of Health has come out to say that's not their official stand and that they are looking into why that incident happened. Meanwhile, most recently on Monday, the 20th of February, a visitor at Parliament who wanted to meet with a parliamentarian, Kelvin Yee, was expelled from the building because she was wearing a knee-length skirt with a slit which exposed part of her thigh um, and a security guard apparently told Parliament staff to get her out. Uh, based on the parliamentary visitor dress code, skirts must be below knee length, but the guideline doesn't spell out if skirts with slits are allowed or not, which is just one of the many ways in which our, <laughs> our dress codes are perhaps a little bit vague. So um, this brings about the very relevant question of firstly, why do dress codes exist? But secondly, how enforceable are they and when are they enforceable? Because it's one thing perhaps to say to attend a formal event like a session of parliament, there are dress codes. Um, But then on the other hand, is that also the case when you're making a police report, if you're getting medical services? Um, And, you know, if we look at what lawyers have said, for instance, um, lawyer Ahmad Ishraq Saad has said that dress codes at government premises are only implicit and they're not enforceable by law. However, In these cases, what it does seem, though, is that often it ends up being at the hands of the person at the moment who is enforcing it. So we've... We've talked about this before um, in pre- on previous occasions when these things happened. And I think um, it comes down to 
well, it comes down to many, many different things. But specifically, the the conversation around police stations and hospitals are particularly egregious because most of the time when people are going to these spaces, they're upset. They're upset. They're in need of assistance. And the fact that they've gone to these public spaces means that they should, they have the right to expect that government officials are going to provide assistance, whether it's in terms of their safety, whether it's in terms of one's health. It is not supposed to be that, oh, you're in an emergency, but you're not dressed appropriately, so I'm going to have to turn you away. Um, I, I think that that contrast between what is perceived as a question of appropriateness or modesty or call it what you want, being juxtaposed against health and safety doesn't, I, I don't know, it doesn't really seem to to match up or make a lot of sense. The added dimension to this, of course, is as we started hearing these conversations around dress codes and what you should wear in a building and so on happen, um, there have been people who have brought up the idea of morality, right? Um, and making references to the Ruko Nagara, for instance, particularly the aspect on Kasupanan and Kasusilaan, and saying that um, that's where these dress codes um, come from and that's what the intent is supposed to be, that collectively this is sort of value that we as a society uphold and that's what these dress codes are meant to do but again it goes back to the question of whose values and when do we enforce them and to what intent so um we mentioned earlier the the igp tansri akril sani abdullah and his response right to the the situation in which a woman was barred entry because she was wearing shorts um and he said that the only time um let me just clarify what i said earlier because he said you can relax the directive but he actually had more details he said that the directive should only be relaxed in life or death emergencies um which i think paints a better picture of of the stand that's being taken here um, and saying that government offices are where people do business and that exactly that, the fifth principle of the Rukunagara, Kasopanan dan Kasusilaan, um, which has been translated here as courtesy and morality, should be the basis for what's used to determine what is considered appropriate clothing in these settings. So, which brings us to really the question we're asking you. Do you think dress codes are useful in government buildings? Have you ever been turned away because of what you were wearing? Uh, you can call us, double seven double three two nine hundred. Send us a voice note or WhatsApp, 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. After this, we'll be speaking with lawyer Parvin Harnam. So keep it here, BFM 89.9. Boring, fake, macho. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. It's 6.14. You're listening to Inside Story with Sharmila and Lynn. And we're talking about dress codes in government buildings uh, coming on the wake of uh, very recently at least three different women being turned away from various government buildings, being denied services in some cases. And so we are asking you, do you think dress codes are useful in government buildings? Have you ever been turned away because of what you were wearing? Call us, double seven double three two nine hundred. Send us a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Uh, now, to look at the legal aspects of this, joining us on the line is lawyer Parvin Koharnam. Parvin, always good to have you with us. Oh, yeah, thanks for having me again. So right. to start with, can a code like a dress code be enforced the same way a law is, uh, whether in government premises or otherwise? Well, okay, so um, dress codes, usually when we talk about law, uh, what you would be looking at is dress codes in like workplaces. So you've got like regulations, say for the 
uh, public department. So they've got like regulations where the public officers, they must dress a certain way. So they've got all these requirements. And in um, even in private companies, you can have um, dress codes. And sometimes it's even recommended to have dress codes. So how they function generally dress codes is it's not a law per se. So it's not a hard law. That means, you know, you wouldn't have like um, a case where, um, where, okay, in pub public settings. So now I'm just talking about in the workplace. So in the workplace, it's not a law where, you know, it's not a criminal thing that you can, you know, like you can, um, you know, maybe like um, sack a person because they, they haven't followed a dress code, for instance. So that's an example. Um, so in that case, um, yes, the employee can take an action against their employer. But when you talk about in the public setting, so like what what you're what we uh, what you, what you have been talking about is public setting. That means uh, general members of the public going to offices. So in that case, that there isn't even a uh, that that's that's not a law. Neither is it actually a reg regulation. But you know you you can still have it. It's not to say that the the um, like a JPN for instance, they can. When you talk about it, like generally speaking, they can basically not allow you to go. Um, and and use their services. That's generally speaking. But when you talk about the legal context, you know, it's a bit complicated because we don't have anything that that um, disallows it in general. So I think I've mentioned this before. But you know what what, what we have is like Article Eight, right, of the federal constitution. So that's equality. So it's egalitarian. So that one, that means everybody has to be treated equally. So what you can't do, um, maybe like if you want to apply it strictly speaking in a legal context, you can't give a male person i mean a male um like uh, maybe a cast uh, what would you uh, okay so say person x is a male he's wearing shorts you allow him to enter the premises and person y is a female she's wearing shorts but you didn't allow her to enter the premises so in that context maybe you can apply article 8 but it's it's a it's a big stretch it's not something that is you know it's it's not codified you know and dress codes generally can't be codified like that even if you want to talk about soft governance like soft laws it's again not very um, realistic in in the concept in the context of like public settings. It's realistic in the context of like uh, offices or workplaces. Yes, you know the employees can be asked to wear certain types of clothes, but again, there cannot be discrimination. If there's discrimination, then there's a case of um, you know the employees can take action. But in the public setting, that's where it gets a bit tricky. So I mean, there there have been instances even in different countries. You know, like um, this has been a point of contention even in countries like India. So there was a case where, you know, a girl was asked to go into, um, I mean, she wanted to go into the exam hall to do her exams, but, you know, she wasn't allowed to do that because she was wearing something that was deemed inappropriate and she was asked to put a curtain on her legs the whole time she was sitting for the exam. So this, it, it's based, it's state-specific. So it's subjective and it's state-specific and it's not really something that can be legally defined per se. And so far, even when you look at legal laws in general or literature there's nothing that that goes to the point of you know even discussing dress codes in a legal context it's it's a bit tricky and i'm not sure if i'm making sense but yeah that's mm. that's what i can about it yeah so Considering all that then, I mean, if, if I'm turned away from a government service because of how I'm dressed, what can I do in the moment? You know, can I just insist upon it? What, what happens? Okay, so in that context, um, you know, it's again, I think uh, one of you mentioned this earlier, it's, it's, it's based on that person, that particular officer. So you're going to have to, um, you know, you're going to have to deal with that officer. So you're going to have to uh, speak to him, make sure that uh, him or her um, 
you know, like talk about your extenuating circumstances. So in this case, I think um, perhaps what's necessary is that there should be some level of standardization when it comes to dress codes. So I think the problem right now is that all these offices that have these um, dress codes, they're all different, you know, like you've got JPM, it has a different set of, um, you know, a different standard when it comes to what's appropriate. And then you've got the other officers, they also have different standards. So that's, that's I would say, is a problem. And when you have this problem of like you being turned away, I think the only thing that you can do in that moment is to ask for an option. Like maybe they have anything that, uh, you know, like a sarung. I know these are things that they sound unpleasant, but unfortunately, when you look at it in that context, you know, if you want to solve your problem in that moment, then that's, that's um, unfortunately, that's the way to go. You would have to deal with that particular officer. But, okay, so I would, I would say, let, let me caveat this. If the officer has been, you know, maybe particularly aggressive in not allowing you to use um, the services or not allowing you to enter the premises. So say the officer touched you in some instance, like maybe pushed you and said that, no, you can't enter right now. And then maybe physically pushed you. Um, then you actually have a case for battery. So in that case, it's, it's, it's tortious, this action. And you can, you know, even if you look at our laws under the Government Proceedings Act, you can actually sue um, the government. But of course, it would be dependent upon the fact that there was physical contact without consent. So yeah, those are, I guess, the options in that moment. Yeah. In a larger sense, what do you make of this argument that dress codes are part of safeguarding morality and public order in our country? Okay, so this one, I would say morality and public order. This is um, a huge uh, question, actually. I would say it's a very tenuous uh, question. So this one, we would have to go back to the fact that uh, our, our country is, the system of our country is basically, um, it's secular. You have your federal constitution, but we also have our Islamic laws. And when you look at Article 5 of the federal constitution, for instance, you talk about life, right? So there have been cases like, um, there was this case, uh, it was about, uh, okay, the name of the case is Lembaga Tata Perimatan Awam against Hospital Basa. So in this case, the question of what life means under Article 5 was brought up. And, you know, what the the case and the court said in that case is that it does actually go, you know, that question does go to honour and dignity as well. So when you talk about morality and that context, so it's interpretation suggests that there is some link. But when you look at the Article 5, subsection 1, for instance, uh, just uh, a general reading, of course, it just means life. But when you talk about interpretation of the law, yes, there is some link, there is some connection. And it's always you go back to the country itself. Again, as I said, state specific, right? So if you look at Malaysia as a as a nation, these are questions that do arise. And I understand that there has been some question about, you know, Rukunagara. That actually, when you look at, um, when you read about this more, I mean, when you look at the situation further, there has been actually suggestions made to put Rukunagara in the federal constitution as well. So these are questions that have actually arised. And, um, you know, it's it's a bit of a dangerous area to, um, to to venture into, but it exists. I'm saying that it exists. There has been question, there has been uh, speculation, there has been um, suggestions made by scholars to actually include Ukunagara in the federal constitution as well. So, uh, and, and I would say that in the Malaysian context especially, you do see some level of morality in um, the federal constitution when you talk about interpretation. 
So though it may be within the purview of the government to put a dress code in place, others, um, Malaysians may feel that it infringes on freedoms. How can we review dress codes so that they are consistent and encompass the wide array of beliefs in Malaysia? So I would say for this context, I think maybe we can look at soft governance. So for this, you can, um, you know, you don't have like, okay, for dress codes, I think it wouldn't be right to have a dress code um, as a law. I mean, generally speaking, like making it have legal power, it doesn't have legal power in any country. You know, okay, like, okay, let me make an example. There is a country, I think there's a state, it's called Chechnya. So in that state, what happened was that there was a dress code imposed for everyone all of a sudden. And it wasn't like legally defined, but it happened. And suddenly everyone had to wear headscarves um, in this particular state. And it became like a legal thing. It was, it had legal power, although there was no legal like there was enforcement, there were issues of like um, paintball being you know, shot at women and things like that. So when you look at it in that context, right, so um, it's maybe a bit of an ex- extreme example, but what I'm saying is that that's not the way to do it, essentially. What we should do is just, okay, if, if we must have dress codes, what we should do is have it standardized, have, it, um, have some level of cohesion. So that means all government departments have one idea, one standard idea of what is decent and give examples, obviously. And, and that standard should not infringe upon rights of the general public. Like, um, like we ha- still have to have our freedoms under, you know, Article 10 and um, Article 8 and, you know, all these, um, federal, these are basic rights, right? So those level, that, that aspect should still be deemed, um, you know, it should exist. But what we need to have is, if you must have dress codes, have it standardized and make sure that it doesn't, the ambiguity doesn't exist. And this is a problem, right? Ambiguity, when you look at even um, our penal code, uh, section 505, subsection B, right? So that's about harmony. So this is this is another uh, point of contention when you talk about these kinds of issues. So always when you when you say like a, when a woman dresses in a way that's indecent, you say that it's against, ha- um, you know, public harmony and things like that, uh, dignity and all that. Um, these are issues that exist within our, uh, law and uh, cases as well, so we need to have that um, that balance needs to exist. Lah. And I would say that to have that balance, if you must have dress codes, have it standardized, have it not vague, so that everybody who goes into these offices they know. So maybe you know what what we can do is is um, you know make sure it exists in the pl- public domain. Because right now, even if you search dress codes, it's not clear. All you get is JPN, and um, you know it's just this one picture and. It's not clear. So I would say the lack of clarity is a problem when you talk about enforcement. And that's why I would say these issues exist now. You've got all these problems of so many people being um, turned away. It's because there's too much discretion on officers, I would say. There's a level of discretion is a problem. Right now, the state as it is creates the option for discretion. And um, for this legal context, I would say discretion is is not good. So if you have something that's standardized, if you have something that's clear, that's comprehensive and applies to all officers, that would be the best way forward. And in that sense, it would be soft governance, not so much, you know, hard laws. Yeah. We have about two minutes left. Now, a number of the cases that we've heard recently involves uh, people being turned away from a police station, uh, being turned away from a hospital emergency department for not being appropriately attired. When something like this happens, when it involves safety and well-being and so on, can citizens take legal action against government servants for denying them that service? 
denying services. Um, you see, that's okay. Taking legal action for denying services, that's strictly speaking, no, there is no option to do that. I'm, I'm saying strictly speaking. So if you want to talk about like interpretation, like I said earlier, what you can argue for is if that public officer has somehow, you know, there was some level of aggression in your interaction with the public officer, you can argue that he somehow, like I wouldn't use the word assault here, but you know, there was some physical contact and you didn't allow it. There was no consent on your part. If you can bring that in, then yes, you have a chance to take an action in tort. But if, you know, there was the, a matter of being turned away for services, there is nothing like directly, like, this is my interpretation, there's nothing directly. But of course, you've got um, the issue of discrimination, right? So if you're a woman, and, and these, these things generally, I would say when you look at um, the public sphere, you see a lot of these issues is with women. So if you can somehow create, um, if there was a case now that, that, that you were discriminated against because you were a woman particularly, then you actually have, you know, Article 8 to support you because Article 8 is actually based on CEDAW, which is uh, for, you know, gender rights. So when you look at that, you can't be discriminated on the basis of your um, sex, essentially. That would also apply to, you know, um, dress, dress code. Discrimination, that's just how it works. So if you have that, law suggests that, we're talking about case law, suggests that um, when it's a right, between you, your individual right and the public authority. So in this case, it would be your individual right versus the public authority. So in that case, you can actually um, sue like, essentially uh, the government. So if you can establish, so two things, yeah? If you can establish physical contact without um, consent, you have an option for tortious action. And if you are a woman and you can somehow establish that there was discrimination, then you also have an option um, to um, sue based on that. But um, caveat here is that we don't actually have anything that is anti-discrimination in our we don't have an anti-discrimination legislation in Malaysia. We do have anti-discrimination when it comes to like if it can apply to rescues for workplaces. So you've got your, you know, there are two provisions in Malaysia um, in in law. So that that exists, but that's not for this kind of setting. Um yeah, so that's what I have to say about that. Parvin, thanks for speaking with us today. That was lawyer Parvin Koharnam. Uh, do keep sending your thoughts through. Do you think dress codes are useful in government buildings? Have you ever been turned away because of what you were wearing? You can call us, you can send us a voice note, you can WhatsApp us, you can tweet us. And keep it here, BFM 89.9. Bring forth Malaysia. BFM 89.9. The Business Station. It is 6.39. You're listening to Inside Story with Sharmila and Lynn. And today we're talking about dress codes when it comes to government buildings like hospitals or police stations, um, especially given that a number of cases have come up recently of women being prevented from entering these buildings to essentially seek help. Um, so we've been asking you, do you think dress codes are useful in spaces like hospitals or police stations? Have you ever been turned away because of what you were wearing? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred, send us a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio. Uh, let's start with a voice note that's come in. This is from Bing. Uh, fortunately, no, I've never been turned away for my dress code. But instinctively, you will know whether your dress code is appropriate or not. Now, for example, I attended the last-minute funeral, which I just found out about it. And 
this was when I was still a teenager. Uh, but I was dressed in, you know, Metallica kind of clothing and then torn jeans, you know. So at that particular moment, I actually felt out of place, you see. So instinctively, you will know. Now, but for putting one's morality or culture uh, ahead of the other when it comes to dressing, uh, I think it's very much uh, very uh, subjective, lah, right? Now, imagine a monk dressed in his robes, all right, a Taoist monk or maybe even a Buddhist monk dressed in his robes going into parliament. Would someone actually say, no, you can't go in because you're not dressed appropriately, you are still wearing slippers, right? So, yeah, be kind a bit, lah. But even that monk should actually realize that he or she, uh, he should probably put on a pair of shoes. <laughs> I don't know. Well, which is why, uh, in those religious institutions, uh, they they actually I actually like uh, the way how they explain what you should be wearing appropriately because they do actually. Uh, mentioned that uh, you cannot expose this, you cannot put too much whatever, you know, normally there is a signboard that says so. So then if everyone is uh, to want to do something like this, uh, then yeah, enforce it in such a manner whereby it's easy for the public to understand what is the dress code for this particular place. If it's a place of worship, you know, there are codes. If it's a government office, yeah, if in exam hall, you should be wearing your school uniform. So be clear. Lah. Thank you for that, Bing. If you would like to send in a voice note or you'd like to give us a call, you can call us at double seven double three two nine hundred. You can send your voice note uh, or WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. We're asking you, do you think dress codes are useful in places like hospitals or police stations uh, and whether you've ever been turned away because of what you were wearing? Uh, so that point about clarity is similar to what our guest Parveen uh, made earlier, which is that currently also... Um, most government buildings have different dress codes which are also enforced differently um, and it's actually quite difficult to access where you should wear what. Yes, and they're not explained. Yes. Uh, so so that's another thing, right, to Bing's point, the explanation of why it is that something might be, uh, something might, might suit the, the situation or the occasion better than others. Um, and I, I think that I'm not in support of a, a, a universal dress code of any kind, um, but I agree that if there were to be one, then yes, um, it is definitely something that we should communicate fully. Shamila, did I ever tell you about the time that we were on a family holiday and then a distant relative passed away and so we had to go to the wake and the only t-shirt because the morning colour for Chinese people, white. So the only white t-shirt that I had brought again on holiday was a Garfield t-shirt that said, good for you. Oh, God. Did I not tell you? You did not. Did you end up wearing it? I did. Ah, oh, gosh. My parents told me it was fine, that nobody would understand probably. And, you know, true enough, it's quite a traditional household. I've never forgotten it. My sister never forgets it. It's kind of a horror story. A it little is. Bit. I'm cringing just thinking about mm. it. But Bing, you know, Bing taking the time to share this story made me feel like, like I owed one in return. But I think it also makes me think about actually extenuating circumstances for most people because we've come back now to that point about specifically spaces like hospitals or, um, or or police stations. And do we really expect people to have to think about what they're wearing when they go? Um, we have a number of people saying this. So Munif says, 
Dear PDRM, you're not the fashion police, just the police. I understand dress codes at formal events and religious buildings and so on, but not where safety or help is at stake. Yep, um, I agree with that. And I also agree with dress codes at formal events, religious buildings, specific instances, again, in which the reason for why we are having to adjust our dressing is very clear. The thing is also, right, by and large events involve you having a choice whether to attend or not. And you can choose not to attend if for whatever reason you don't necessarily agree with or like the dress code they have. Um, For me, it becomes more dicey when you talk about services that we have to access. Um, Of course, something like an emergency and a hospital is a lot more of an extreme example than say I need to renew my passport. But in the end, how someone dresses shouldn't preclude someone from being able to access an essential service. So we have um, this from Winston. Winston says, I am a Chinese. Malaysia is a Muslim country and we must have the respect of religion and tolerance with it. For the dress code issue, I would say it's ignorant and naive not to understand the tutup aurat. Who's to blame? Blame it on politicians and the education system for not instilling the tolerance of religion. So that's from Winston. And I think that there's a lot to unpack there. Um, first and foremost, just to clarify once more, because it's a, it's a misconception that often gets thrown about. Malaysia is not a Muslim country. Malaysia is a Muslim majority country. Um, Islam is the official religion of the federation. It is not, however, a Muslim country. Those things get conflated a lot, but factually speaking, that's where we are. Um, The other thing, though, is when we talk about respect of religion and tolerance, I guess what are we talking about? Which direction is this going in? Yes, and when something is subjective as what is decent or what is moral, who gets to enforce that? And, And And yeah, and is it right to enforce values onto someone else whose values may not reflect yours? Yes, Um, and and I think that that is where the, again, that misconception of, that that misconception, the cultural misconception comes in. Um, We also have... We also have this from RAR who says, what if someone was unfortunately robbed or assaulted, clothes torn, etc., and they turn up at the station to make a report? Should that person go home and dress appropriately before coming in? If dress code is seen as important, then the related officers should prepare robes or garments to still, to still provide services. This is similar to churches and mosques in accepting visitors. Um. I'm not sure how comfortable I am with that being a requirement in places like police stations. But yes, at least that's better than turning people away. Uh, We do have a caller on the line. Good evening, Ernie. What are your thoughts? Yes, good evening. I Recently, me and my wife were summoned to the police station. And... um, Although we had an appointment, right, we were still denied entry because, like, they, my wife came directly from the office and it was in office attire with a knee-length skirt, you know, beyond the knee. And we were told that it was inappropriate dress and we needed to be more covered up. And this is with all the documentation that we need to see the police officer and we were still denied entry, which I feel is preposterous. They should be, they should take into account extenuating circumstances like you mentioned earlier. Ernie, uh, thank you for your thoughts and thank you for calling. Um, no, this is this is exactly it. I think that um, I think going to a police station is often for very particular reasons. People aren't just dropping by out of um, you know because they they need something and that's not urgent. So it really isn't the time to be enforcing dress codes, especially in Ernie's case where it was formal attire anyway. 
keep those thoughts coming. Um, what do you do? You think dress codes are useful in spaces like hospitals or police stations? Have you ever been turned away because of what you were wearing? Call double seven double three two nine hundred. Send a voice note or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Birkins for Mama. BFM eighty nine point nine. The Business Station. It is just coming up to 6.49. You're listening to Inside Story with Sharmila and Lynn. And we've been asking you, do you think dress codes are useful in spaces like hospitals or police stations? Have you ever been turned away because or because of what you were wearing? You can call us. You can send us a voice note. You can WhatsApp us. You can tweet us. Uh, we still have uh, plenty of messages coming in. So let's talk uh, about the people who have, in fact, been turned away. Alex says, I was twice turned away at a police station for wearing shorts. My prior visit, it was allowed. It depends on the gender of the sentry. It was a female officer who turned me away. Yeah, I mean, we're actually getting a number of people now talking to us about um, particularly police stations, right, and being turned away. Um, I, I mean, I... I'm not sure that we can overstate this, that this isn't um, this isn't the time to be looking at what people are wearing. CK just says, emergency over dress code, anyhow, in capital. Yep. Um, I, I mean, that's where I stand. We also have Linda who says, several years ago, I had to get something done in Putrajaya. I was wearing formal work clothes with a knee-length police skirt, actually... Uh, police skirt, with a knee-length pencil skirt below the knee. Uh, I was denied entry by the security guard because I needed to get the matter sorted. I walked about and found a scarf vendor, bought a long scarf and managed to fashion a long skirt, covering up those pesky, distracting shins. I looked ridiculous, but the guard allowed me in. I guess for all ladies, just remember, any exposure of legs appear to be problematic, even ankles. So just wear long trousers or floor-sweeping dresses. Sadly, that's just the way it is. Linda, I have a good friend who went to Putrajaya with her mum and my friend was wearing a skirt and her mum was wearing pants. And what ended up happening is that her mum waited in the toilet for an hour and my friend had to change into her mum's pants before she could go and access services. So this is by no means an isolated incident. Um, we also have Suing, who has also just sent in a clarification saying Islam is a religion of the Federation, not the official religion of the Federation. Uh, and this was in response earlier to Winston um, saying that Malaysia is a Muslim country, mm-hmm. to which we offered a clarification. Suing, thank you for that further point. Suing also says, the dress code is about prevent- presenting an image, and so it is only applicable to the organisation providing the service to a client. It's never an imposition on the one being served. The concept is so wrong. By the way, this is also connected to teaching secondary students about the whole idea of government and the levels and forms. I remember learning about the what's, like, you know, parliament, but never the why's, such as what the underlying principles in elections are democracy are. Uh, which was what Fami Reza tried to share with university students in campuses before GE15, but was stopped by supposed by university authorities because the basic idea should be people are the boss. So why must the boss dress a certain way for their servants? And what does it mean to dress courtesy, courteously? So poor people who can't help their faded, dirty, holy clothes are being discourteous? Ugh. Uh, also, please don't equate dressing in government places with religious settings. So many good points there, Suing. Um, I wanted to pick up on the point about how dress codes can often be exclusionary, right? Because on the one hand, yes, we are talking about um, we are talking about services. We are talking about often this is something that ends up impacting women, but. It is also true that by and large, this notion that everyone should have formal wear, everyone should own a collared top, everyone should have formal long pants that are not torn jeans is very exclusionary. Uh, Well, 
exclusionary is right and uh, offering a different perspective or, or rather a um, a supplementary perspective on this is Jacqueline who says, no, it doesn't make sense. Uh, why are we so preoccupied with what people wear? I have been turned away at the immigration department for wearing a knee-length dress, fully covered sleeve top with an unexposed chest. Please focus on your KPIs and deliverables instead of moral policing. What about rural areas and communities where people are more used to casual wear? Uh, adding on to that, Jonas says, a place where the public can have access shouldn't have dress codes for the public. If not, it defeats the purpose of having a place for the public. Keep those thoughts coming. We are asking you, do you think dress codes are useful in spaces like hospitals or police stations? Have you ever been turned away because of what you were wearing? Call double seven double three two nine hundred. 2900 send us a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio. In the meantime, uh, here's a little bit of music. Sam Cooke with A Change Is Gonna Come, BFM 89.9. Behind Famous Men, BFM. 89.9, The Business Station. Good evening, you're with Sharmila and Lynn. Next, more of our conversation on dress codes, especially in terms of how they intersect with morality and modest- modesty. And then on popcorn culture, our review of Marvel's latest offering, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania. Keep those thoughts coming. Call double seven double three two nine hundred. send a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Beating Fickle Mindsets. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. It is 7.07. You're listening to Inside Story with Sharmila and Lynn. And we've been asking you, do you think dress codes are useful in spaces like hospitals or police stations? Have you ever been turned away because of what you're wearing? Uh, this, of course, comes on the wake of uh, two women recently having experienced exactly that at police stations and a hospital. Um, so... Send those thoughts through. You can call double seven double three two nine hundred. Send a voice note or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Uh, let's kick things off on this side of things with some voice notes. To start with, we have this from Nat. Hi, uh, I'm. I believe that if it's a purposeful. Uh, international visit to um, any government buildings then yes you should observe and respect the dress code but um, when it comes to emergency situations where you have to visit the um, the police station the hospital or even the balai bomber um, I, I don't think you should put much talk into observing what uh, you're wearing at that point of emergency right uh, I don't think they should uh, turn you away just because you're not quote-unquote unappropriately dressed. Emergency is an emergency. You shouldn't turn uh, the public away just because they're not dressed in a certain way. They're not The fact that they do not observe the uh, the supposedly dress code. I think that's that's um, unacceptable. Thank you for that, Nat. Um, yeah, I mean, an emergency is an emergency. I think it should be Sadly, it should be quite obvious. It, it should be obvious. And um, I go back to the point that was raised pretty well uh, by another listener, Su Ing, which is the question of providing a service. If you provide a service, I'm not sure that you should be able to dictate how I look when I come to get that service, especially in the case of an emergency. We also have um, another voice note that's come in. This is from Sabrina. My Australian children, daughters, uh, age 12 and 14, 
um, are still adjusting to the dress codes in Malaysia. Look, I am um, wearing a hijab but I don't impose it on my girls. So they have been turned away four times. Uh, once in the Pejabat Agama in KL. Second, the recent one was in... Um, uh, was a batu caves would you believe it i wanted to bring them to see the kawadis uh, but we could not ascend the stairs because there's apparently a dress code did you know that because uh, i think that's new because i brought my uh, older children when they were uh, age six and uh, ten um to batu caves there were not any there, there was not any uh, dress code so there was a sign there oh you need to um, wear a scarf which costs 15 ringgit if you are not wearing a scarf to go and see the cave up there at the stairs um, and if you're wearing anything that shows your knees so it's not particularly to Islam but also to Hinduism apparently and the third occasion was uh, they couldn't enter a mosque um, in Sha'alam, uh, my daughter wanted to see the architecture in Masjid Abdul Aziz as well as uh, to pray Asar at that time and they were turned away. So um, the guard asked, oh, if uh, if you're a Muslim and they go like, yeah, we're, we are. Uh, so uh, why aren't you wearing a hijab? So it was more like an interrogation. So my girls decided, nah, we're not going to pray. Uh, the fourth occasion was uh, when we were in Italy. So luckily, um, it was winter, so we were all bundled up. Everybody wore hats and uh, scarves and gloves. So I think um, for government buildings, uh, maybe uh, in hospitals and also police, it's not appropriate. But um, yeah, we just need to follow by the rules, I suppose. And we have the option, okay, if you don't like it, go back and change or not go at all. Thank you for that, Sabrina. I mean, I think that was a... To say the least, um, an interesting list of incidents and, and I think things that are very familiar to most of us. Um, the part about not liking it, then you don't have to go is where, again, I go back to not everything is a place that you have an option not to go to. Yes, um, public services mm. where you need to get a... You need to get your IC, you need to get your passport, your driving license. These are some of the examples that are coming up. Uh, we also, since we've been focusing specifically on police stations, have a voice note, I think, that has come in from Nick. To be fair to the authorities, right, these kind of things are very e easily uh, viral. You know, what are the things that actually happened on the ground? Did the authorities outright reject that? Or did they speak nicely, explain nicely, and then the issue became a valid issue. So I think there needs to be more clarity from the other side of the story, not just one side of the story, in my opinion. Uh, thank you for that. Well, to be clear, both cases that we referenced, the hospital and the police station, one, someone was seeking out medical care, and the other person was actually seeking help from the police. Yes, they um, wanted to make a report, right? Yes. Yeah. So in those cases, I don't think it's about whether it was explained to them nicely or not. It's a case of, is this the time to impose a dress code? Uh, and also, just 
I guess for what it's worth, uh, to your point about other side of the story, in, in both instances, the uh, PDRM as well as MOH have both weighed in. So yeah. uh, the MOH specifically saying that actually this is not where they're coming from and they're going to investigate it. So perhaps we will hear that that other perspective soon. Um, the police did already acknowledge it and then kind of reverted back to in cases of emergency, yes, allowances should be made. But broadly speaking, it's the public that should be dressing appropriately. Now, the police are a theme that's coming through loud and clear in the messages. Uh, I wanted to start with this one from Michelle, which made me really sad. Michelle said, I've seen a man with visible tattoo on his knuckles turned away from the police station. He wanted to make a snatch theft report for his scared kid. I ended up sitting close to the kid while she was making a statement at the counter while the dad stood outside watching helplessly. It was ridiculous. Oh, that is actually really quite unacceptable. Um, I mean... I can't say I've ever seen a directive on any government building saying no tattoos allowed. Um, and even if that's the case, this is clearly not in, in what happens if there's no one there to watch the kid? Yes. This uh, is yeah. This uh, is exactly what I'm saying when we talk about um, there are times when this shouldn't even be an issue. Su Yang says, I once went to a police station to make a police report after an accident, but the policeman at the guard post said I couldn't enter because I was wearing shorts. I told him I just got into an accident and came here in a tow truck, but he said he said it's the rules. He let me in after I pulled my shorts lower to the point that it covered it covered um, to the point that it covered my knees, so he didn't care that I looked like Borat when he was trying to check into a hotel. Yeah. Um I, I <laughs> Okay, that's a that's a very um, amusing mental image. But um, no, completely. I, I agree that this is, I think, as you said, police, um, police stations are generally spaces that haven't, one, as, as we're hearing from people, haven't necessarily been enforcing this to, you know, properly. Uh, but on the other hand, also exactly the kind of place where people don't expect to be stopped and uh, policed for what they're wearing. Um, anyway, Keep your thoughts coming. Um, we are talking about dress codes. Are they useful in spaces like hospitals or police stations? Have you ever been turned away because of what you were wearing? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred, send a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. After this, we will close off our conversation by looking at um, this notion of uh, modesty, of courtesy, of morality uh, that's been brought into the conversation. Uh, so... Keep it here. We will be speaking to Dr. Lai Swat Yan from the uh, Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at UM. Uh, keep it here, BFM 89.9. Bold, fearless Malaysia. BFM 89.9, the business station. It is 7.16. You're listening to Inside Story with Sharmila and Lynn. Uh, We'd like to continue hearing from you. Keep those thoughts coming. Do you think dress codes are useful in spaces like hospitals or police stations? Have you ever been turned away because of what you were wearing? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred. Send a voice note or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Uh, we have plenty of thoughts coming through. So um, I'd like to take us back to Nick, who sent a voice note earlier, saying we should hear both sides of the story, and uh, it may be a question of how people spoke to one another, and and that getting blown out of proportion. So uh, we said at the time that. 
it has these incidents have already been acknowledged by PDRM and MOH. Um, Nick is back to say that MOH did say that treatment was given. You can refer to their statement. No, they did say the treatment was given. They also said that this is not a practice that they've put in place, i.e. it's not official policy to insist that people go home and change before they come back for treatment. Um, let's see, we have... Actually, this is a point um, that we alluded to early on. So Anthony says, why are we pandering to little Napoleons? There shouldn't be any policing of dress codes. Um, these are personal liberties that are non-negotiable. Um, to put it into perspective, um, as it is... To put it into perspective, um, sometimes even the right attire for beachwear isn't allowed on a beach these days. So this at uh, this point about this sort of authority or this sort of control over what people can wear uh, being firstly not very clear and secondly being executed on the ground by um, individuals who might interpret it very differently is a problem. Our guest earlier, Parveen Koharnam, she pointed that out as well. The fact that often it goes down to the particular officer in charge. Uh, meanwhile, we also have a uh, point that's being raised by Josh who says... Well, um, one's, I have two incidents. One's personal, one's from a friend. My friend is a lawyer. Uh, she went to court dressed in black and white, covering everything. The judge didn't want to entertain her and kept putting her off. Eventually, he addressed someone else in court to tell her that her black formal jacket had gold-plated buttons and therefore wasn't suitable. So now we are not even talking about morality. We're just talking about fashion. Yeah, I know. But I, I think that it's a, it's a good example in some ways of how dress codes can get Kind the subjectivity. Of, yes, exactly. Anyway, um, keep those thoughts coming. Do you think dress codes are useful in places like hospitals or police stations? You can call us, you can send us a voice note, you can WhatsApp us, you can tweet us. Now, on the line with us is Dr. Lai Swat Yan, Senior Lecturer of the Gender Studies Programme at the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at University Malaya. Uh, so she specialises in gender studies, religion and development studies. Dr. Lai, thanks, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. So we've been talking about this uh, slew of reports on women being refused services or being asked to leave a premise because they're not meeting the required dress codes. Um, and while dress codes typically involve both men and women, why do you think women tend to bear the brunt of this uh, a lot more, especially in public spaces? Uh, well, I think women tend to bear the brunt of it because of the prevalence of sexism in society, where we tend to judge a woman by the appearance first rather than their skills and capability. You know, and we often, you know, I'm sure you, most of you have encountered this. We often praise women for their appearance, right? Rather than their skills or say, hey, what a good idea. You know, I really love, you know, what you have to say. But we say, oh, you look so, you know, you look so pretty today. And even ministers, female ministers have not been spat in the past, you know, for example, for not uh, looking, uh, for not wearing lipstick. Uh, a Malaysian female minister have been chided for not wearing lipsticks before. And when we talk about this, it also brings to mind because my work, I'm very much focused on gender-based violence, right? Uh, and when it comes to that, it also brings to mind victim blaming of women when it comes to cases of sexual harassment or rape, you know, where where there's a tendency to focus on the way how they dress, you know, oh, no wonder she's being uh, sexually harassed or raped. It's because of the way how she dressed, you know, it's too scantily clad, you know, or the way how she behaves. So if you look at what has been happening, it's like we kind of divert the focus uh, from the perpetrator and we're actually letting the perpetrator off the hook, but blame the woman instead. 
And this points to a very significant uh, context in, in, in the society, which means there's actually gender inequality in society where men have actually more power compared to women, which is why even though they are the victims, they are still being blamed. And in the literature, you know, in, in research, you know, there's also the, the, the term victim blaming when it, when it comes to cases of uh, uh, sexual assault. And, and uh, rather than that, I think the focus actually should have been on the delivery of quality services. And in addition to that, of course, to address problems that hampers this delivery, rather than making it more difficult for the public to, uh, to access such uh, public facilities. I mean, I would, I would kind of put it out there. What if it has been a swimmer who were injured and needed treatment? Are we going to say, hey, you know, uh, please change from your, uh, your swimming attire first, right? Mm. Or what if a, a fight occurred in a sports facility and, you know, and, you, know you, you just need to go to the police station and report it? And of course, when it comes to fights, sometimes, you know, clothes could be torn and so on and so forth. So, forth. so there's also been some comment on how the issue of dress codes um, is closely related to the fifth Rukunigara, which is kasopanan dan kasusilaan, uh, or courtesy and morality. What do you think about this notion of linking what, what people can wear, in this case uh, women, to these principles? You know, when I hear this question, what comes to mind, and which is something I miss and love about Malaysia, especially when I'm overseas, is that the multiculturalism and diversity in the Malaysian society. Where else in the world, I ask, would you have all the major public, you know, cultural and religious holidays being declared a public holiday? Of course, when people come to Malaysia, they'll say, oh, Malaysia have so many public holidays. And, I, and, and you know what I tell them? Well, that's the beauty of Malaysia. And of course, uh, when it comes to this also, you know, I, I really hope this will not disappear over time. Just as, you know, when it comes to uh, the Chongsam, I've worn Chongsam, but not just Chongsam also. I've also worn the Baju Kurung. And, and, and I think we need to celebrate that, uh, the multiculturalism and diversity because I want to link it to uh, courtesy and morality. Because when we talk about courtesy and morality or attire, it's not uh, independent of uh, culture and religion, and also, of course, the context. And I'll say, I mean, I would have said it's different if you go to an office in shorts, right? Because that's, also, that's the professional dress code. But even then, even when we talk about uh, 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 places of work, I, I, I'm kind of thinking also about when I was a university student back in the late 1980s or 1990s, where I think things, you know, is very much different from today uh, when it's actually more, uh, how should I say, more relaxed. I have lecturers who come in sandals and come in jeans, T-shirts and whatnot. But of course, today that's changing. And I've, you know, and I've also kind of also reflected as to why, you know, why the focus on so much on uh, attire. And I can't help but think that it's also to do with the fact that, you know, our society is becoming more materialistic, more consumeristic as well. The focus is overwhelmingly, uh, you know, it's, the focus is more on the appearance. And I hope uh, this would change. Uh, just look at the fact that when uh, Anwar became, uh, you know, Dr. Sri Anwar Ibrahim became the prime minister, he was wearing a chapal, right? But, you know, and it, it immediately it became a topic of conversation in the, uh, you know, in uh, uh, online. Yeah. But, uh, you know, instead of focusing on looks, I think we should focus on substance. So, um, 
I'd like to build on, um, you know, some of those points that you raised and, and discuss the fact that we are a multi-ethnic, multi-religious country. Um, how do you think that ends up shaping the way we view modesty or what it means to be modest when it comes to dressing? Uh, because we are multicultural and multi-ethnic, I think the way how we view modesty is very different, right? Say, for example, wearing shorts. It's very common for uh, Chinese or Indians, you know, to wear shorts, when, when they go to play sports. I mean, I, I've actually been a very active badminton player and I've joined different badminton groups and, and I've also been hiking and whatnot. So, yeah, so I've seen, uh, you know, I, I'm sure if you do that also, you've seen lots of people, you know, wearing shorts when, they, uh, when they're involved in sports. So, yeah. Uh, so, which is why I'm emphasizing on the fact that it's very uh, much context dependent and also it, it differs from, uh, from culture and religion as well. Just like you look at Cheong, Cheong Sam, right? You look at the sari. Is the natural, is the national, is the, uh, is the ethnic uh, dress representing the uh, the various uh, groups? So, so in that sense, I I think we cannot actually uh, kind of uh, propose uh, a single a single uh, uh, a code of uh, um, of modesty. So I, I think it needs to be looked into more in depth. Dr. Lai, thanks for speaking with us today. Okay, thank. Thanks so much. That was Dr. Lai Swat Yan, Senior Lecturer of the Gender Studies Program at the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at UM. Uh, do keep your thoughts coming. Do you think dress codes are useful in places like hospitals uh, or police stations? Have you ever been turned away? You can call us, you can send us a voice note, you can WhatsApp us, you can tweet us and keep it here, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the VFM app.